0: how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today.
1: Uh, Andy, I think this trailer for uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, I think today's me... Sitting in a theater in, let's say, early 1984, uh, watching this trailer, I would have been right pissed.
0: They really. This is one that they give up quite a bit, and it's interesting because listening to uh, to good old Harv Bennett talking about it, he is he good
1: old now? Is that where we are? I, we're you know, it's, we've moved on to good old exactly. Harv. Okay, yeah. good. All Next right.
0: week it'll be you know Harv and me and. <laughs> 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 okay. Go on. And I can't and, wait. And, and then
1: it'll be Uncle Harv <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Harv and then and then Crazy Uncle Harv.
0: <laughs> crazy Uncle Harv. Well, it gets to that point by Star Trek V, so Ooh. maybe it will be. Um I don't even remember where I was going with that. <laughs> oh, no, but he talked about how he and Leonard, um, you know, they were uh, editing the film and the studio showed them the trailer. And he, in his mind, when he was kind of coming up with the idea for the script, he's like, oh, the Enterprise, the destruction of the Enterprise, that's going to be a huge thing. It's going to be kind of the big pivotal moment toward the end of the film. Um, And that's where he started writing the script and he worked backward from there. Um, And when they saw the trailer, it's like they both were so upset at Paramount because they're like, you guys are giving everything away. And they fought and fought, but Paramount won out. And um, I guess they were just really kind of irritated that Paramount went that route with the trailer.
1: It seems it reads to me very much like Paramount didn't get it. Yeah, right. You know, like we, at, at this point, now that nah, now the Enterprise has been destroyed so many times, it's sort of lost its luster because we already knew what was going to happen with Spock. Like any right-thinking moviegoer and Star Trek fan, by this point got it that we were going to see Spock again there's no way you have a movie called the search for Spock and they're not going to give give up the fact that we're going to
0: see Spock so Although that'd be pretty funny it would <laughs> well I guess we didn't find him let's go home <laughs>
1: Well, that was, uh, did I ever tell you about my uh, giant squid uh, viewing experience? I don't. There was a show. It was the search for the giant squid from uh, Jacques Cousteau's, uh, it was one of his last things, the legendary search for the giant squid. And after two hours, I devoted my life to this thing. They never find it. They never find the search for the giant squid. And I I kind of feel like that that might have actually been a better movie if they didn't find Spock.
0: That was very funny, yeah. Uh, it, no, it's I totally I, that or or the uh, it's it's the same thing with uh, what's his name, yeah, and uh, Capone's, <laughs> Cap- yeah, oh
1: yeah, mustached guy, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely the yeah. opening Capone's vault. Um, so it, in this case, I think you know they they actually and the script is written as such to make the destruction of the enterprise a significant emotional beat, right? It is a significant peak in the film, and they just. Gave it up in the trailer, and I think that was a really lousy choice.
0: Yeah, it was very unfortunate. And uh, I, I mean, my guess is it was that this they the this the studio did decide. Well, it's a search for Spock. We can't ever reveal anything about Spock. Um, and I mean, exactly like you just said, they they went the other route, and they ended up giving up a lot of the uh, the stuff that uh, really is kind of the emotional peaks. Yeah. For well, the film.
1: And, and the the caper aspect of it, you know, the, yep. the whole oh, fact yeah. that it's, it's such a, a, you know, the stuff that in the in the first half hour is, is sets up the great caper of stealing the ship. And I think they, they gave up so much of that, uh, that that I just think they didn't have to. So for me, the trailer is a, the trailer's a wash. I wasn't crazy about it.
0: I will say it's very funny with the quick uh, cut that they have to Christopher Lloyd as the Klingon um, screaming uh, fire in uh, in Klingonese. <laughs> it really just sounds like he's cursing at the screen. And I guess that they can get away with that because he's technically speaking Klingon. But it doesn't sound that way. It sounds like <laughs> you don't want your children to be hearing what he's screaming at that particular moment. <laughs> and it's well, not subtitled, which is, makes it even no. funnier.
1: <laughs> it is. It really is. Star Trek, as they say, it's always been a great way to get kids invested in foreign languages.
0: <laughs> All that they've <laughs> loved. Good. All that they've fought for, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: the search for Spock. The word, sir? The word? Is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage auto systems. Clear all morons. Cleared, sir.
1: One quarter impulse power.
0: Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Thing on Berta Bracer. She's arming torpedoes. The shields up. The shield's not responsive. Fuck! We're a sitting deck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek 3. The search for Spock. The adventure continues. The next reel,
1: everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there's Andy
0: Nelson. May I join your mind? Kerplach!
1: <laughs> <And> we spoil <laughs> movies tonight on the show. Leonard Nimoy ditches the ears and dons the beret as director of 1984's Star Trek 3 The Search for Himself. Before we get that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel.
0: And if you're a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. I will say this about Star Trek Three, Andy. The ships look really good. Oh, they do. Yes, indeed. They
1: really do. So the, the fit and finish largely of the, uh, of the ships are a dramatic improvement over the last... Uh, film. I think they just they look
0: great. Some of that is because we have a bird of prey and I mean that is just such a fantastic ship to be looking at all the time. It's like gorgeous and I love it always have and uh, I think that it just gave such a nice difference between the two ships. I mean the last one it was two Federation starships kind of at war and and There was enough of a difference between the two, but it also wasn't as interesting because it's just like, you know, two starships shooting at each other. Totally. This was fun to see. Plus, uh, you know, there's just, there's actually a lot of ships that kind of get taken down in this one. At at least, I mean, compared to last time.
1: Yeah, right, right. The bird of prey is such an iconic ship, uh, and it looks so, you know, obviously they, they do make the point in the film of just how, oh, why is she just sitting there? She could, actually, we're outgunned 10 to 1, right, you know, of, of the Enterprise versus... Um, versus the bird of prey in this film, but it looks like such, I mean, it just really captures such a menacing um, perspective. And this was, um, you know, we, we should step back just a little bit. This is a, in, essentially the cinematic introduction of the Klingons. I mean, we, we see a little bit of the Klingons in Star Trek, uh, in Star Trek 1, um, you know, in the very open, but this, that's not largely a Klingon movie. Uh, they're, they're token Klingons. Um, but, for the first time having the cinematic experience with the klingons it it uh, that ship uh, when we first see that ship in the very uh, opening sequence of the film it is menacing and beautiful
0: yeah the way it appears right there over that little uh, i can't remember what that vessel is the just kind of the the scavengers vessel when mm-hmm. it kind of appears over that it's like wow cuz it's cloaked and then it appears uh, out of the uh, you know, out of that cloaking shield that it has. And it's just, it's so cool. And it's so big oh, compared to that little ship. It's its really just fantastic. and so threatening, you're right.
1: And it it is, uh, in fact, this is the introduction
0: of the Bird of Prey. This
1: is the first time we see it. Uh, it was, it, the Bird of Prey class was introduced for this movie. And it was, uh, it, it's seen in, you know, five subsequent uh, uh, films. Uh, it's you know, throughout the next generation, Deep Space Nine, um, it's, it's all over the place. Um, And it's
0: fun to see the, um, just kind of looking at the different ILM people who kind of came up with it and, and looking at kind of their sketches and everything and seeing how they kind of evolved to that whole idea. And, you know, they talked about, you know, they, they, they had pictures of, you know, different, uh, different birds in flight. And then they had a picture of like just a muscle man flexing. And the guy was like, one of the people's like, I want it to look like this, where his yeah. arms are down, and they wanted to keep the big deltoids on him and everything. And so they really kind of incorporated a lot of interesting little things to kind of make that that kind of iconic shape. It's pretty cool.
1: It is It is very cool. Um, uh, the, oh God, the cloaking device, too. I mean, did that not blow your mind a little bit? Do you, do you, have, do you remember your experience first seeing this movie and watching the film come out of Cloak?
0: Well, you know what's funny about this movie is I never saw this until uh, I think it was the same uh, marathon when I saw the first one. What? Wait. What? <laughs> That's true. Somehow I skipped over this. I just went from two to four. What? <laughs> Andy, well, because I knew, I'm like, well, they're going to. Wait find a minute. Spock. It's a trilogy, man. It's I a- get it. I get
1: it. You skipped the empire of this trilogy?
0: Well, I don't know if I'd call it the empire of this trilogy, but yes.
1: <laughs> you, I'm just trying to be generous, man. Come on.
0: Uh, I skipped. I'm, I I would say this the uh, the Matrix Revolutions of this trilogy. Is that the second one? <laughs>
1: oh, I think it wasn't it reloaded. I now, yeah, reloaded. Now, that's right. Yeah, reloaded can't was second. Revolutions was the you know reconstituted. You know. <laughs> 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 Matrix reconstituted. yes uh wow that stuns me that you would have let that happen even circa 1984 like you're pretty on top of things
0: well i wasn't that on top of things with star trek like i wasn't paying attention to that sort of stuff and and i heard from people that i knew who had seen it that yeah they find him and so i was like okay and i guess i didn't have much more stake in the game um to rush out and see it and i heard it wasn't very good and so i it wasn't something that i i felt obligated to watch
1: okay well um i i get that and i i will say my memory of it you know this cloaking thing that was that was a big deal seeing the cloaking thing on on screen and i think they did it really really well uh and you know, for a for when I was seeing it as a young teenager, it was it, it was mind blowing watching that on the big screen. I thought it was just beautiful, and the fact that this also introduces the cloaking device as a as a Klingon you know bit of technology, I think is is really fascinating. And so I'm I I think it's a. It it adds to the lore of Star Trek, this film, in a lot of ways that I think are celebrated in other films, even though the sum of all of those things in this film ends up being, eh, not that great.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the unfortunate thing about the movie is that... um... It's uh, there's interesting ideas going on in here, but I just feel like if they had actually brought in some other writers to really kind of put it all together, it could have worked a lot better. Unfortunately, you know, as it was, I just think that that you know it was not uh, something that Harve Bennett really. I don't know. I, I guess it's just one of those things. It's like, sure, they asked you to write it, but that doesn't mean you as the producer. Should do that, you know, look at what's smartest for the project and maybe hire an, an actual writer to do the writing.
1: I like to think my inner revisionist historian. <laughs> <laughs> Likes to think that, like I excuse this film as as um, a great example of groupthink, that you know somehow it came around that Harv should write the script. He writes it in six weeks. They give it to Leonard Nimoy. He hadn't directed anything, and and to hear, um you know to hear Shatner tell the story, uh, uh, Nimoy calls Shatner and says I I don't know how to direct, but I'm I'm going to direct. I'm going to dr- direct the next film, and Shatner says. Uh, okay, come, come over to my show. I'm doing a, the way he says, I'm doing a police show. Right. <laughs> he says, uh, and, uh, and he puts Leonard behind, uh, allows him to direct a sequence in this show, I think uncredited, and teaches him, uh, as Shatner says, everything he knows. I teach him everything he knows. Uh, and uh, then he goes on to Star Trek three and directs me, and he was my acolyte. He says, he was my acolyte, Andy. My kingdom for somebody to say that about me one day. <laughs> he says, Leonard owes me more than he has ever admitted for teaching him everything I know about directing for Star Trek Three, And that is what is on screen uh, on this film. And so I back to this whole groupthink thing here we have Leonard Nimoy who's never directed anything and maybe uh was directing this script and didn't quite have uh, the authority to say this is this is not that great this is just sort of bouncing around this is ultimately a story that moves some of the interesting technology forward some of the interesting canon elements
0: forward but is ultimately an inconsequential story well, except I don't know if he felt that, like listening to Nimoy talk about it. He seemed to really click with the story. And and I think that their focus was on friendship, like, you know, hearing him talk about the themes and stuff, you know, the themes of friendship and everything come forward. I definitely see that. But does it make sense in the bigger picture and everything? And And for me, the struggle I have is we just watched this brilliant film where you have, you know, the 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 needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or of the one um, and Spock sacrifices himself. And then here they flip that and they say the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many. And they kind of, you know, you know, steal the enterprise and, you know, risk their careers just to go save the one person. Mm-hmm. And yes, I get it. It's for friendship and all that. Um and I understand that that's kind of the theme that they were trying to push with this, but at the same time, it's like, I, I feel like you just kind of ruined the message that you were trying to say, and that you had it kind of laid out so beautifully in the previous film. And all of a sudden, it's like, ah, screw that. Let's just, now we're going to be greedy. <laughs> Because and then the other thing that frustrates me is we get to the end of the film and they get to you know to this big ceremony that, that um, Bones and and uh, Spock have to go through to transfer his Katra back from from Bones's brain into Spock's brain and they warn him they say um, there is great danger here and you might die. And it's like, well, then what is the point of this whole mission that we're on here? If he's going to die, they came here to save Spock, but now they're going to kill McCoy just to do it. It's like, what was the point of all of this? Totally. I got so mad.
1: (laughs) Well, I and I get mad. I think I in my initial comments of the very first movie three weeks ago. I I said one of the things that I really like about Star Trek in general is that when there is a giant problem, it's solved through maybe fantastically, but it's solved through a technological solution, a practical solution, a military or a strategic solution. And in this film, the entire arc of the narrative is built on an incredibly risky ancient ritual practiced by a race of alien that has long shunned exactly that kind of ritual, right? It is, yeah. it relies on the mystical, like the force. And that's a thing that I don't feel like it, it's, it, I, I feel like it, it shakes an angry stick at what is Star Trek. And I, I, it's really frustrating. It's a frustrating way, I think, to, to make this happen. It, it's, it is a, it, it feels like an excuse to get spock back into the series after a a well-earned death and uh, as much as i'm glad he's back for later movies uh i i'm sure i'm like just generally unsatisfied by how
0: they did it yeah absolutely it's it's a very frustrating uh way to kind of put this story together and you know another frustration it's like the the spock is only alive because of this crazy genesis planet that's that's going awry and the whole thing is kind of exploding and falling apart and aging way too quickly and collapsing basically yeah, right uh, aside from the fact that the whole idea of genesis is nonsense um and the one of the least scientific things i think that i've seen on star trek um it's um i i just don't understand the whole fo- the, the way that spock ages um, like he ages so fast. I mean, we see him over the course of I don't know how long they're on the planet, but a couple days, maybe, maybe, maybe. And he goes from like you know a nine year old or whatever to uh to Spock at you know as old as he was on the show, but then like they they take him off and he stops aging. And I'm like, well, is that because he was on the planet he was aging? Wouldn't he wouldn't it be in his genes now? And New uh, Savick said that right. I mean. And New Savick actually
1: did tell us, like, we have to get him off the planet, uh, and the implication is because the planet is affecting him this way, and and she also goes on to to imply that he is affecting the planet. I, I don't get, I don't get it. I am not saying I get it, but New Savick seemed to have a uh, uh, have her her head around it. <laughs> the problem I have with that is actually not his aging; it's how does the body of old Spock right? The dead yeah. body of old Spock. Turn they put him baby. in this <laughs> photon torpedo tube and what? He hits the Genesis planet and Benjamin <laughs> buttons back to nine and then starts aging again? What the hell is that all <laughs> right, about?
0: Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, so much of it is just nonsense. And it's just so fantastical and so hard to buy into. And it just, it really frustrates me. <laughs>
1: It really does. It really does. And I, and I've grown through this movie to really despise the Genesis Planet. Like I just hate it. I hate cactuses with snow on them. I hate the ring round the Genesis Planet conversation that New Savick and David have. Like, oh, now we're in the Eastern Quadrant and there's snow uh. in the desert, and now we're going to the mountains. And you know what I mean? Like, it is. Such terrible writing, that sequence, to introduce us to the Genesis planet that eventually the Genesis planet loses all
0: meaning. Again, going back to the idea of Star Trek kind of having a better grounding in science, it's like, you can't just shoot this Genesis uh, missile at any plant, any rock in space, and turn it into a living and breathing planet. It's like there are a lot of requirements, like how far it is from a source, like a sun, that can actually warm it and give it its its heat, so that it can grow all of this stuff. And here we've got this planet. God only knows where it is. That uh, it's, but it's like, and then the seasons. It's like, why is it snowing all of a sudden in the in the tropical quarter? Is it mm-hmm. like, how does that tie? anything i don't know it just it's just very frustrating but see i wonder because
1: that i you know i i also have a problem with that i think it's i think it's silly it's a it's a narrative excuse and it, it always has been i uh, but why did we not poke such holes in it in star trek 2 it was well, stupid
0: then, too. It was stupid then, too. and uh, But I think it's we get so little of it. I mean, we see the cave. We get a sense of what they're doing, but y- you don't have a good sense of how long it took to make that cave. Mm-hmm. At the very yeah. end of the film, when they actually do make it, I, I don't know. I guess you're just in, in such an emotionally um, heightened moment because of Stock, uh, Spock's recent death mm-hmm. that you know, you just kind of go along with it and, and just kind of, okay, now there's the planet here.
1: Well, and I would, I would just to pile on that point, I think that because so much of Star Trek II works without the Genesis planet, right. uh, it, you know, it, it could have been just a, a ridiculously powerful weapon. It could have been something else, you, you know, it, it really could have just been the terrorist story. And uh, because of that, we don't uh, we don't stop to think too hard about it, but in this film, they anchor the entire story around this foundational logic that is faulty. And because they force you to think about it, because if you don't think about it, uh, you know you can't engage with the story at all. Uh, when they open the door to to you know asking these questions, this is kind of what you get.
0: It's 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 just frustrating because. I don't know, after having such an incredible experience with Star Trek II um, and knowing that this flows directly from that, you really want it to be kind of at that same level. And yeah. it just ends up falling so, uh, so flat. I mean, it's got Klingons. It's got Klingons speaking Klingons. So, I mean, there are some cool elements. Um,
1: it's got Klingons speaking uh, Klingons. You know, I, and, and I every time I look at the Klingons, ah, it's great. Oh, there's Klingons. But why these Klingons?
0: you know why no, like these people like Christopher Lloyd <laughs>
1: like Christopher Lloyd and and I think there are people I'm I i do not know if this is a binary thing I and, and I can't wait to hear what you think of Christopher Lloyd because I have a real problem with Christopher Lloyd I think he is an incredibly talented actor and um, you know to hear Leonard Nimoy uh, talk about him uh, as a chameleon that he can totally do it like it's it's gonna be great um, well that's that's all well and good, but I never saw him as anything other than you know Christopher Lloyd, and and I couldn't get I couldn't get through that. I it was Christopher Lloyd with a forehead on pasted on, and the fact that they didn't do the teeth that other Klingons had the teeth, but it, and and you actually exemplify this. You grab the stills for our deep scene dive today, and uh, if you look at the still of him yelling, you actually see Christopher Lloyd's dental work. Like it it just. The, those little things, when you get the close-up of his fillings, <laughs> I, I can't get out of the fact that it's Christopher Lloyd and not a Klingon. I was never able to engage there.
0: What about you? I mean, did you buy him? No, I, I have a really hard time. And it's funny; it's it's a difficult, like trying to put myself back into nineteen eighty-four brain, looking at this before Back to the Future, because that was obviously um, one year later. Such an iconic character created by Christopher Lloyd mm-hmm. um, in Doc Brown. Um, and and before that, I don't know if there's really anything with Christopher Lloyd that I would have known him from. You so yeah, not uh, Taxi? I wasn't. I I never watched Taxi. My parents um, were
1: such huge Taxi fans. I what I can't remember is when I would have watched Taxi because I know I was watching it young, but maybe not this young. Was it still on? I I don't actually remember when it was on and versus when it was in syndication already.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I think it was the early '80s, so it's. Yeah. It might have been right before this. It Might have been over right before this, but regardless, I, like you know, I, I certainly didn't see uh, one floor of the cuckoo's nest. Um, uh, well, I probably—I mean, by the time I saw this, I had seen a lot of other Christopher Lloyd stuff, and I had a very um, a specific idea of who he was in my head. And it could be just because of that that I've never been able to buy Christopher Lloyd as this particular character. I just, I just don't see it you know he's there's something a little different about him uh, as an actor and I I mean I agree he's a brilliant actor he can be a chameleon certainly but something about him as a Klingon I just kind of struggle with
1: that's that's a real challenge he does have a dog we get, we get dog. a Klingon dog. Do you have a Do you have trouble with the way they did the language, the choices they made around the language? I I, I do uh, the consistency of the language. I have some real trouble with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I um I, I could never figure out why the Klingons were speaking English because uh, they they speak Klingonese so often. Um, But then they randomly start speaking English. And why would they speak English at any time except when they're interacting with the Federation starships? And that really frustrated me, especially listening to the guy who created the language and just how I mean, it was really just magical hearing him talk about how he came up with it. And just, I mean, he's a really nerdy um, linguist and he really devised like kind of the foundations for this full language that we now have. and to know that they they had it there, and they just didn't take it that much of a step further, and really kind of stick with it.
1: They, they when it switches back and forth in mid sentence, I have yeah. real trouble with it. It's just they make the choice. But the same thing happens with uh, weirdly with Chekhov, and uh, <laughs> this this one little bit. Chekhov turns around and to Scotty, who is not Russian. Tur- Chekhov turns around and speaks russian to him what is that all about
0: all i could figure out was like it's some russian joke that he was telling or something and it's just like i i i was like maybe he's told that to scotty before and scotty knows it like c'est la vie you know sort of like <laughs> an expression that he uses a lot around the ship
1: yeah it's just <laughs> I don't know if this. that's the case it just didn't didn't play <laughs>
0: It was very frustrating. I mean, there were a lot of script elements that they threw in here. You know, they have when we don't see um, McCoy on screen um, and we know that he has uh, Spock's Katra in him. There are a few moments where he we hear him speak, but it's clearly Spock's voice and everyone turns and looks at him and he's like, what? You know, and kind of that whole thing. <laughs> It's, I mean, there are moments like that, I'm like, do they really need to go there? Because it just, I don't know, it just kind of ends up becoming really silly and very frustrating, especially when it's so interesting, like when, when um, Kirk walks into Spock's room early on and finds uh, McCoy sitting there in the shadows, uh, kind of possessed almost by Spock's ghost. I mean, that was an incredibly effective scene. I really enjoyed that, um, only to have it diminished by doing these little cheap gags.
1: Did I mention how good the ships looked? <laughs> uh, beautiful ships. <laughs> and I, and I, I also the the the, uh, the shuttle or the uh, the shipyard, right? The when they go to the station, the reveal oh. of the station is particularly beautiful. I'm trying to find the things that just need to be celebrated.
0: I also loved that. Um, I, I really appreciated the moment when it's coming into the the space dock. And you see it kind of fly past that window, and everybody kind of stands up and looks at it. And it's like, it was kind of a really powerful moment yeah. to see the Enterprise coming in. She's got all of her burns and and totally. charred you know uh, body from her battles with Khan. Uh, it's fantastic that um, uh, that Yeoman Rand is in the group. <laughs> I know. Watching. Like I love how they just pepper her in wherever they get a chance because like, we got to get <laughs> Rand back in here.
1: And she had a new rank,
0: right? I mean, she had she had been promoted
1: clearly. Yes, uh, in a different uniform, and uh, and and in fact, I think the entire opening sequence once they get to uh, the the station, uh, I I actually like I like the as soon as they get to the administrivia of it, you know, of, of like oh no, she's being decommissioned, everybody's going off to their own places, you need to find your way around. I actually I I think the um, uh, the breakout is uh, is fun, um, you know, what's the word, Admiral? The word is no. I am therefore going anyway. Uh, which I love. I think all that stuff is, is really, it's fun and it's the kind of stuff I want uh, out of Star Trek. The breakout of the Enterprise I, I love and I, I think it's a fun bit of frivolity when the, uh, the Excelsior is, is uh, you know, uh, sabotaged. Uh, all of that stuff is is fun. So we get this like 15 or 20 minute bit on the space station that that ends up working for me.
0: I think I think so too. There's a lot of great bits. Um, I've been laughing before the show with you about the, I guess cousins that we found between the Star Trek and Star Wars universes, <laughs> between <laughs> the strange little alien guy that uh, that McCoy uh, as Spock talks to trying to commission a ship uh, who looks awfully like the the Deveronian, kind of the devil man in the can- Cantina in uh, Star Wars. Minus Man. the horns and add a few extra little uh, little uh, hippie frills on them, and I swear it's the same guy. Totally I, I want to I
1: want to compliment you uh, as a student
0: of Star Wars lore that
1: you just dropped. Deveronian is quite impressive.
0: Damn right. Well, I have to look it up, but I'm trying to make myself sound more impressive. You didn't even
1: have to. You didn't even have to give that up, Andy. I was impressed anyway.
0: Oh uh, well, thank you, yeah. thank you. Right. But. But also, there is a bit in there that um, that I get frustrated with. Um, it's when, uh, what's his name? The uh, Morrow, I think it's the uh, the guy who's kind of in charge of everything there at the station. He's talking to Kirk, and Kirk is talking to him in the bar about, hey, I need to do this. I need to take the Enterprise, go back to Genesis, and save Spock. And the guy's like, no, too bad. The council's not going to let you do that, all that sort of stuff. And then he has this line... Um, that I it's a line that really frustrated me when I heard it. He says, "Jim, your life and your career stand for rationality, not intellectual chaos. Keep up this emotional behavior, and you'll lose everything." <laughs> and I was just like, ugh, I don't know. His I I, I I felt like he didn't really know Jim because he seems so irrational at times and and full of that intellectual chaos and. I mean he he has that emotional behavior he's obviously kind of the opposite of Spock as as we see but I'm just like I I don't know maybe Jim just kind of shows him the the business side of him and, and he doesn't really get to see him in action out in the field, but no, I, mean, I, I feel like we've seen that a lot in the show. <laughs> we totally have.
1: You're absolutely right to bring that up too. I, I did not make that connection, but you're so right. In fact, so much of what this film I think purports to do is to show us a captain Kirk who has become totally unhinged because he doesn't have Spock to rely on. If Spock was around and it was anyone else, uh, that it, Kirk was close to, do you think Spock would have said, "Oh, Captain, let's go ahead and steal a spaceship and <laughs> go get I support that, Captain. No, of course not, because it's ridiculous. That's what this film could have shown us. And I think we see hints of it uh, that he's he is, in fact, this is the Kirk. This could have been the raw, unfiltered Captain Kirk that has no 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 support he's missing you know arguably one and a half of his key um you know of the key sort of trio uh because he certainly doesn't have, he has the sarcastic side of bones everything else in bones is all shaken up right Exactly. you know as a result of all this so i think that's a really good point and and it's it's not it, it's not great I'm never going to look at that scene again the same way. I'm, uh, you've just damaged the film even more for me. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, so, uh, okay. What else is important to us about the the history of the film? What else did you learn?
0: Something that I think is interesting. I don't know about the history, um, but it's just it's an interesting thing that we haven't talked about at all in Star Trek yet. But It's an interesting show because, or just a franchise, because it has taken the idea of voiceover um, that sometimes just gets, uh, you know, a lot of people like, oh, never use voiceover. It's just a a cheap writer's tool, Um, but it's become so kind of um, connected to this just franchise as the captain's log, as a chance for the captain to kind of talk a little bit. And I find that it's it's interesting listening to the way that they use it in the films. It's not often uh, in the films so much, at least at this point. Um, uh, but um, but it, it's been nice seeing kind of how they use it and when. And just it's it's little bits to kind of catch you up a little bit, a little expositional. But this one, I, I liked how in this one, it actually kind of was a little heavier. Is like Kirk and his emotions about Spock and how the the... I can't remember what he says. Like, there's that great line... Right at the beginning he's talking about how they dropped off all the trainees and the it feels like, you know, parents at home waiting for their kids who are all gone or something like that. Right,
1: right, which and, is lovely.
0: Yeah, it's just it's really well written. It's it's really touching and I just think in context of the captain's log and kind of that expositional narration that they use it for, um, it was nice to just kind of get a sense that it was actually a little different this time.
1: It it's it's something I think in Star Trek that is easy to forgive partially because it comes you know, from the show. Uh, It it was such an element of the show to move the show forward cheaply, uh, to move the narrative forward without having to create an effect, uh, you know, or a new set. Um, But in in this case, I I think it works really well. And I think starting here, uh, it it only gets more and more serious. We have some captain's log in the next film, even though there's that much more sort of frivolity. But, uh, you know, some of the best captain's log work it comes up in star trek um uh, the um, undiscovered country and it becomes a key part of the narrative of the the mystery right of the story which i can't wait to talk about um you know i'll never forgive them for the death of my son uh, yeah you know, which is just such a powerful moment. And that really starts, I mean, that narrative, I think, starts right here, uh, which is, again, this is, an, it's another example of a rock thrown in the in the Star Trek pond, the ripples of which pay off, you know, a decade later. Um, it, it ends up
0: being very powerful. I wish that the moment was more powerful for
1: right, me. Right, right.
0: And that's what's so frustrating, is it's so like, it's a really great, um, I mean, I love Shatner's reaction when he kind of stumbles and falls. Um, it just kind of that whole bit, I think was just so beautiful and touching. Um, unfortunately it's just like, you know, he, there's, we never get a sense of any relationship built from this. I mean, between the second and third films, like he's known his son for all of a month or whatever. And, and, and I get it, it still is painful, but I just never got a sense that there was that relationship built between them
1: so uh harv bennett says that coming out of star trek 2 uh the film was performing so well he says this was the fastest green light for a sequel i've ever experienced
0: get get to work on star Trek. Yeah. god love that and then uh they brought uh i can't remember how the idea of nimoy directing came up but um i i thought it was funny that that there all this this talk back and forth about him directing and then michael eisner who was the head of paramount at the time it was just like oh no no we don't want you to direct because you you know you didn't want to be any any more star trek films and you had it in your contract written that that you were out that you had to be killed in star trek 2 because you wanted out of this franchise and nimoy had to go talk to him he's like no 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 I, I never had that in my contract uh you know i'm i'm happy to be a part of the franchise and had to like talk him down basically so that he would be able to direct it after all
1: uh the way uh the way shatner tells it uh <laughs> which is always the best. Anytime
0: Shatner is telling these it, stories, it's, it's really. The Shatner just, perspectives are my favorite
1: ones. They really are, because in this case, and that's why I want to bring it up, the way Shatner tells the story is like, Leonard went to the studio and said, you want me back in this? I've got to direct. <laughs> right, he's holding a gun to their head. It was, uh, it, it, it's, uh, everything has such drama. He tells the story of the uh, of the, the Paramount fire, the way shatner tells it uh he's walking on set he had one day left to shoot before he had to get back to his police series and uh, which was on hiatus and he walks through the door and there's fire and the place is on fire and i have to and and he goes in and and uh has to do something heroic and uh he says uh, you know and then I, I hear the sirens and i come out uh, of the smoke and i saluted to the fire department and i said. It's all, year, it's all yours. I emerged blackened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the best was him talking about how he's just like, I didn't, I didn't even think about. I've got to save somebody. I've got to, you know, make sure nobody's hurt. I've got to save the studio. All I could think about is if this, if this burns down and puts the production behind by a day, then it's going to affect my show, and I can't <laughs> let it do that. I've got to stop. <laughs> oh, Shatner. Did I ever tell you I worked with him once?
1: Uh, you did not, Andy. How do you keep that
0: uh, from me? <laughs> I don't know. It was on a pilot for a uh, a cooking show, and he was the guest chef <laughs> for not. an episode. Yes, it was uh, called Cooking's a Drag, and it was a drag queen host, and uh, he was our first guest, and it was uh, it was very funny. He made mint juleps.
1: That's pretty recent, right?
0: Uh, it's been a while now. We probably did that like ten years ago or something.
1: When do you not work on stuff that involves booze? It feels like you've been sending, as an aside, I, I just, pardon me, listeners. You send me stuff to watch of yours, stuff that you're actively working, it's all about booze. Have you been just working, is that all you do anymore, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and booze? I, I don't know what you're
0: talking about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, do we want to go into our uh, deep scene dive, Andy?
0: Deep scene dive.
1: Uh we've got a collection of scenes. It's
0: it's a sequence. It is a sequence. It's a really deep sequence time. Deep sequence.
1: <laughs> as long as it doesn't change the acronym DSD, Andy. <laughs>
0: uh, if you're looking
1: at the script in the show notes, it would be DSD 201 to 213. It's right about 1 hour, 11 minutes and 7 seconds through 1 hour, 16 minutes and 6 seconds. Do you
0: want to set it up? It's a nice little five minute uh, chunk of time. Um, this so So the Enterprise has just arrived at Genesis. They have found um, the uh, the Klingon bird of prey. The, you know, we have this the fantastically prescient uh, Kirk, who is able to pinpoint it in the uh, in the blackness of space. He can pinpoint the, uh, the the variations of starlight so that he knows exactly where the bird of prey is. So when it un- uncloaks, they can shoot at it before it shoots at them. Which I thought was fantastic. Actually, <laughs> I just loved that about him. Um, and so there's this little brief uh, shoot' out between the two of them. They all kind of stop for a sec as they kind of try to gauge what the other's doing. And then they talk and uh, and uh, the Klingon team reveals that they actually have people on the planet who have uh, prisoners. and uh, they want the enterprise because now their ship is damaged, and they are going to take the enterprise. And get the information about Genesis. And they are going to kill someone on the planet just to show that they mean it. And that is the moment they kill Kirk's son, David. And we start our sequence uh, right after that. As, as, as uh, Christopher Lloyd's character gives them a two-minute time limit before they have to um, get... Uh, or he's going to beam his people over to their ship so they can take it. And we start there.
1: I love the look of this sequence, and I think it starts with the Enterprise. It is, you know, it is damaged Uh, where we've got a reverse shot, or where we got a shot looking. It's this typical sort of from the view screen shot uh, where we see the the helmsman and the uh, weapons center and then Kirk's chair in the center. They're all facing backward, and, um, and Kirk is kind of holding on to Bone's um, arm. And and I should add, uh, you can look at all of the images that represent this sequence on the website, at thenextworld.com, uh, or you can jump over to Facebook. We're creating galleries of all these images on our Facebook page. Uh, and so you can jump in and actually look at the images as we're uh, doing this. We've got a slew of them that represent the, the shot here. Um, and, and I just love the look of it. The smoke, the lights, the ge- red gels, the blue keys, they just look, it looks really good. And I think it's, it, it does a great job from, a de- from the production design of just sort of, um, you know, really keying in on the emotional elements of, of the ship. It's a, it's a look at the ship that we don't
0: usually see it's smoky, it's dark, it's uh, mysterious, you know, it's going into a uh, self-destruct mode. And so it's got this extra tension and I love that uh, it, like the camera work, you start getting some, I mean, it's, the camera work is very basic as far as just kind of, you know, panning with characters as they're moving by and stuff like that. I mean, that's kind of the the crux of any of the movement is, is it's led by characters.
1: Cinematography by Charles Correll
0: right and uh, but but the the lighting all of that element of the cinematography gives a really heightened emotional um, strength to it plus you have some nice uh, slow dolly moves particularly n- nice dolly moves coming in on on Kirk's face as he check off and um, uh, Scotty are entering their destruct codes into the system and the camera just, Slowly creeps in on Kirk's face as the as the thing goes until finally after it starts, you get this great just close up of his face as he's looking at the screen and then they they all head out of the room and run to the uh, to get uh, beamed down to the planet. But I also thought it was interesting as the sequence kind of went. We started getting like the camera angles started getting like really low and I think it kind of starts when. Um, we're kind of always when we're in the, um, uh, the bridges of both ships, we're always a little below the captain anyway. They're always kind of sitting kind of above us. Right. But once they kind of set the self-destruct and run out, like we all of a sudden the camera's like in a hallway and it's really low. It's like knee level. And it looks at them as they kind of looks up at them as they run by. And and it keeps staying really low with people. Uh, when when uh, Krug's people come onto the ship, the camera's low with them as they're walking around. It always kind of maintains this kind of low angle look, which usually gives people more power when you have kind of a lower angle looking up at somebody. So I wasn't quite sure... What the the goal there was, other than it does kind of add to some of the tension because you've got this a lot of powerful looking people kind of running around on screen here,
1: running down the hall and and those quick cuts from corridor to corridor, um, and and then seeing it play out in reverse when the other you know the other team gets there, uh, I, I think I think you're right. It just sort of adds to that to that tension. The the one thing that I think about when I look at this sequence that. The set of stills that we pulled in particular, I think highlight this, is how much I wish we had just a little bit more uh, camera variety uh, on Krug's angle, right? I mean, we get pretty much the lockdown camera from the front right looking up at him in his throne. And it is varying degrees of sort of zoom on him and very rare that we end up with something i mean there's one shot that that's kind of a reverse angle where you see behind him uh but there is just you i, I get the sense that they just didn't have enough of the set built um you know for the the klingon interiors because you just don't get a lot of klingon interior my challenge with that is they have given us such a tasty treat in the exterior of the warbird um, this is i i find that a miss i want to see more of the inside of the ship i'd be more interested in in greater
0: variety of,
1: of the Klingon experience.
0: Well, and that could have just done with some of the blocking. Like, instead of having him just sitting in his chair the whole time, yeah. um, you know, have him pacing or something. But yeah, I mean, you lose a lot of, of power for this powerful character when he's just kind of stuck sitting in his chair pushing his little button the whole time. Right. Oh, it's boy, like he pushes that button
1: a lot. You're right.
0: It's uh, the One time that his, his shots get pretty interesting is when he realizes that the ship's about to blow up, and he stands up and screams. Um, you know, you get kind of just a, a more interesting closer close up of him as he stands up and screams. And that's where you see his fillings. Um, but <laughs> at the same time, that that for me also is kind of the weirdest lighting behind him because it's like his head is he's got that perfectly framed behind uh, or in front of the, the roof of their bridge. And it's like this this hot pink and purple. And it's like the I don't know for me that really kind of took me out. I mean, it's such a quick shot, but I'm like, it, it just does, was really it looks
1: like a uh, it's it's like a, it's like disco. a disco room, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what it is. That's and and you're right. And a part of it maybe um, I don't know. Could there be a transfer issue here? Like that pink, it doesn't look as much like red alert. It looks a little bit pink alert.
0: It is, it is. But I mean, it's, yeah, I think that, I I don't think it's a transfer issue unless they just mistransferred it. But um, they might have been trying to delineate the difference between the red on the Enterprise. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. But uh, I don't recall, was it that pink when they are, I think it was actually, now that I'm scrolling around. No, it wasn't. I was looking for when they were Meeting with the uh, Klingon lady earlier to get the Genesis plans. She's the one who's kind of in a oh no, it still is pink and purple over his head. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's green, actually. All of his people around him are working with green monitors. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. A very odd mix of colors in there. But um, yeah, it's just kind of a, a funky little thing. Um, I will say that the part of this um, the sequence that we picked that is the real highlight for me is the Enterprise's destruction. Um, the exteriors, like all those beautiful models starting with the top dome as it explodes the, and, and starts kind of plummeting toward the planet. Then you get that fantastic like crackling as the skin is all like burning off and you see the, the classic NCC-1701 and USS Enterprise is kind of burning away. And then the big explosion of the disc, and then just kind of the way that it just kind of crashes down into the atmosphere and burns up. I mean, it's beautiful, beautiful model work, and uh, just uh, you know pyrotechnics, um, you know, blue screen, everything that ILM was doing here really is, I think, just top notch, uh, just work. It's, it's wonderful.
1: I, I do too. I, I find that sequence particularly when you see the NCC seventeen oh one. Just shred in fire uh, is is one of the most emotionally like powerful moments of the sequence of the film for me um, because it, it's another thing I thought that was completely sacrosanct. Like you you just don't blow up the Enterprise. That is yeah, a thing like that we'll up the never... Millennium Falcon, right? Right, right. It's it's uh, exactly that is exactly what it is. You just don't blow up the Millennium. Falcon. God, they're gonna blow up the Millennium Falcon now. <laughs>
0: now i am just sure of it now that you put it out
1: there we're gonna lose the millennium falcon in this movie and then we're gonna get to be all pissed off when the han solo movie comes around and we get to see the millennium falcon built we're like oh we're gonna find so many reasons to be upset (laughs) (laughs)
0: oh first world problems with (sighs) films gotta love it (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, sort of distracting. Anyway, uh, I I find those really uh, powerful sequences, and uh, thank goodness they are. Uh, the the sequence right after the the film is just uh, shot forty seven of fifty five, where we pull back and we see a wider shot of the Enterprise is uh, now as as it, it's really being kind of pulled apart, and a little bit more of the fire is kind of engulfing it, and uh, um, it, it's just. Uh, I still, I mean, I'm just looking at it. I set it as my desktop wallpaper, (laughs) and it just kind of takes my breath away.
0: This sequence also, I think, is incredibly um, helped out by just a really beautiful track by uh, James Horner, who returned to compose uh, for this film, continuing his themes that he had started really developing in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Um, And notably, I think, because this story really focuses on the search for Spock, um, the Vulcan themes that he started uh, back in that uh, previous film uh, really developed so nicely here. I mean, it's not as good a score as as the second one, but I do enjoy how he kind of continued and developed it. I wish he was able to continue with Star Trek 4, um, but uh, the studio really wanted him to continue it. Um, which was smart of them and Leonard Nimoy as a first-time director really didn't have much say, even though he really wanted his buddy uh, Leonard Rosenman to do it. Um, he'll get his wish on the next one. And I can't wait to talk about that one. <laughs> uh, I do have to point out though with James Horner, uh, I kind of made a bungle <laughs> talking about him last week with Star Trek. Uh, I, when I mentioned that, um, his uh that he didn't take any of the themes from uh from either alexander courage or jerry goldsmith and lo and behold he really did he, the, he I think and, he and not a little bit either <laughs> no there are quite a few and I just I had not uh had it playing recently I hadn't been uh reading about it but yeah th- I think it said is there are six cues that he uh integrated elements from those other scores into it I'm like, so oh yeah I guess there's quite Quite a bit of uh, of their music, all scattered through Star Trek too. So, there's my apology. Good correction, Andy. Good correction. Not an apo- <laughs> just a correction. We don't just apologize, Andy. <laughs> That's we funny. don't
1: have a, a hashtag no apologies. <laughs> <That's funny>. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag fake corner. <laughs> Is there anything in this film that really you feel showcases Nimoy uh, as a director in this sequence?
0: Yeah, No, I, looking at this sequence, it, it felt very standard. I mean, other than kind of that lower angle placement of the cameras through some of it, uh, just to kind of help build some of that tension. Um, otherwise, uh, the one thing that I find that he integrates into the film and in the next one is there's uh, a little more levity. I think both he and Harve Bennett were really excited to get some of their their comedy into it and boy there are times where i really struggle with that because i'm like ugh, i just don't think it works that well all the time i mean i don't mind some of the comedy integrated into these into these films but um but when it works and i just felt like there were things that happened in here that i was just like
1: and and that is something i'm where we're absolutely going to be talking about next week as well because generally uh, the the stuff in this film, you know, we mentioned the the a little bit more of the frivolity that comes in the in that opening sequence, the caper. Uh, what's funny about that is the wit of the characters, right? The don't call me tiny. Uh, you know those those things um, work in character. They're brief and they're not slapstick. And uh, there are other elements in this film and definitely in the next film that take me out of Star Trek because they verge on slapstick. Uh, and that is uh I, I think that's a real challenge. And I think that's a great observation because I feel like it, it does hang on Bennett and Nimoy um as as trying to, you know, shake up the tone a little bit and, and it doesn't really work all the time for me either.
0: No, it was frustrating. Um I and there there are a lot of little things like that all through it. I was also frustrated that they I, it's really it's a cheap trick in not just this franchise it happens in many films but when they cut to the video screen footage of stuff the fact that you know they just use the this it's like they're watching uh you know the uh, wrath of <laughs> khan watching the last movie yeah and uh. i mean we're gonna we'll see this again next week it's it's one of those frustrating things it's like i i wish that they had just you know maybe reshot the scene but from a different angle to make mm-hmm. it look and and yeah, you do have that one moment. Uh, it just when uh, when Kirk and Spock's father are watching the uh, Spock's death scene, and they're looking for that little clue, and then you see it in there, and I'm just like,
1: I always rrr, have this rrr. image that the first line after that sequence is, "That was a great movie." <laughs> like one of them needs to acknowledge that they were just watching the movie right exactly um, uh, yeah I really liked it we we didn't run down the rest of the cast that is in this sequence uh, obviously uh, William Shatner DeForest Kelly, James Doohan uh, as uh, Scooty <laughs> <laughs> Walter Koenig uh, George DeKai, uh, Merit uh, Buttrick as David and Robin Curtis as New Savick uh, and uh, that was a real shame yeah, in was. my book it's a real shame. No di- no discredit to Robin Curtis. I'm sure she's a very nice person, but uh, I, I think they set up something really solid with Kirstie Alley, uh, who walked away uh, from it uh, herself. Yeah,
0: didn't, didn't want to be typecast. Yeah. Didn't want to spend the rest of her life going to Star Trek conventions. Yeah.
1: I am sure sorry about that, because I, I thought she's, she is Savic. She will always be Savic. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, Stephen... actually, I actually liked Robin Curtis quite a bit as Savick, but um, it was just frustrating because I, I liked Kirstie Alley that much more.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Stephen Manley uh, we see in this scene as one of seven Spocks. He plays Spock, age 17. Uh, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny to hear him tell the story now that he, he goes to conventions or started going to conventions, uh, you know, years after. Uh, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he tells a story about how, uh, you know, he he loves to take pictures with the ladies who want to be to have their picture taken with the Spock who does Ponfar. Uh, and he always holds up <laughs> their fingers and rubs their hands like he does in the movie. And uh, he says they always they always shake a little bit and then they smile. <laughs> what a weird experience that must be. <laughs> that just um, feels dirty. And obviously uh, Christopher Lloyd is Commander Krug.
0: Yeah. I thought looking at all the different people who did Spock um there were 5 actors who did it, including Leonard Nimoy um but there were two others one was uh, I think uh Nimoy's body devil, and the other was Frank Welker who is in, is just a very famous uh, voice actor and uh one who's just been around forever as just kind of a I mean he's he's that guy who will do like random like bird calls and things in movies and in animated films and always pops up as some interesting characters um but he was he did all of spock's screaming <laughs> i thought that was great
1: <laughs> we talked about him recently well maybe not recently but i i know we've talked about him uh in the last year
0: yes we have.
1: have been when's the last time we mentioned frank Welker's name it's certainly not the first won't be the last
0: no, he's yeah. uh, he's pretty pretty brilliant. Um, and now, and now that you say that, I'm gonna have to look because I can't remember. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. We did talk about it
1: recent, and it was another one of those surprising bits. And don't forget Frank Welker; he's probably screamed and did a bird call. <laughs> That's what yeah, he yeah. does. Uh, Robert Fletcher does the costumes. Uh, sh- your comments on
0: Star Trek civilian clothes. I. I like some clothes <laughs> <laughs> I, I I generally liked stuff like what Kirk was wearing and stuff. but I did write a note. I'm like, what are Sulu and Chekhov wearing? <laughs> like I just really I just really couldn't well, figure out what they were trying to go for
1: Sulu had a it had some sort of a a very strange cloak with weird flappy sleeves that he wasn't that di- weren't sewn up. <laughs> I, I don't understand what those are, right? They're like wings, leather wings. Chekhov, I didn't have a problem with, but Bones was wearing something with a like a leather breastplate <laughs> under yeah. his jacket, uh, and, and a cravat, uh, which I I guess is in character, but I always thought his was a very strange, very, very strange selection.
0: Yeah, it is weird. Um, but I mean, I liked it. I still liked it, but it was it was one of those things where I'm like, "I don't quite get
1: what they're wearing." Yeah. But. I I like the the uniform changes that they made for Scotty in particular. They just gave him a jacket. It didn't have the thing that went over his chest, you know, that connected with the strap over on the right shoulder. It was just a jacket that snapped, and that felt very practical to me for an engineer. I liked that.
0: Yeah, no, it was nice. It was nice. And the Klingon outfits too. I mean, like you mentioned with the bird of prey, it kind of became the iconic uh, bird that we see kind of rippling through the things and and Spock's uh, or I mean, um, uh, David's death and everything. But at the same time, we also get kind of the iconic Klingon look because the TV show didn't have this Klingons looking this way. And so, uh, and I guess we won't anymore. As we talked yeah. about uh, on our weekend uh, Patreon show, it's like, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of the, uh, the, the window of uh, Klingons that we'll be looking into.
1: Yeah. You know, the original Klingons were described in the scripts and the TV scripts as just, I, I think, what now would be described as horribly racist. You know, they're, they're orientals or hard faced. You know, is is what they would write in the notes, and so there was nothing about the ridge on the forehead, and and um, uh, the the first time we saw them was in an episode Errand of Mercy in 1967, and um, and uh, so we uh, we end up meeting them there, but their skin is is much more yellow or bronze, uh, and um, you know the eyebrows were um, quite prominent, uh, but we didn't have any of the teeth. Uh, they didn't have much of the the language. Uh, it, it turns out it was James Doohan who um, actually suggested the gibberish that kind of got the language of Klingon uh, started. Uh, and that's where,
0: back in the in the motion picture in the motion one. picture, yeah.
1: right, right, right. Um, and and so there are just a lot of little pieces of the Klingons, and of, of course Roddenberry says, you know, we're we didn't. I wasn't intending for this to be a Russian thing but you know Star Trek is a mirror of the culture that we have and so uh you know that's very much what it what it felt like uh was the US Soviet relations at the uh, you know kind of through the last half of the century and so um it ends up being sort of an interesting thing but here this film just like the Bird of Prey they sort of you know took over the Klingons as as a a significant foe in Star Trek and and gave, uh, pretty much gave Michael Dorn his career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned that whole idea of the, the Cold War and kind of the U.S. and the Russians and kind of that was kind of the, you know, us and the Klingons, or, you know, the Federation of the Klingons. Um, and that was definitely something that Harv Bennett was really tapping into, along with the Genesis uh, project being kind of uh, a mirror of of nuclear, you know, the kind of the, the Cold War we had going on at the time. Um, do you see that? Do you do you get a sense that that was really kind of a, a you know a little theme that they had going on in here? Because I if I I understand it's there And when he says it. I'm like yeah I can totally see it, but I don't know I just didn't uh, didn't buy into it that much.
1: I didn't see it when I, at the time you know, but I was a kid. Now of course sure. I see it, but I also have the benefit of a much more fleshed out klingon relationship with klingons from other films and the next generation which you know took that in a, a totally different direction and and, uh, and and so i feel like um, it, you know i i don't know if i can look at that at this film separate from history but but this film you know if you step back to 1984 this film was you know it was probably much more kind of prescient to people who were seeing it in their 20s and, and 30s at the time. And that, that certainly wasn't me. I was an idiot.
0: Yeah, well, no. And and I, I I get that the Genesis weapon was kind of a mirror of nuclear weapons at mm-hmm. the time and kind of everything. But I, I don't know. I just feel like it wasn't developed in enough of a way where it was like really kind of felt like a nuclear weapon sort of thing, you know. I feel like they tried to push that in the film, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I just don't think that they made it work that well.
1: But see, this is... It, it's hard not to see it after you have had the benefit of seeing the undiscovered country. Yeah. Right? The right. undiscovered country is unrepentantly uh, the story of the fall of the Soviet Union. This is uh, the,
0: the spiritual prequel in that context. Right, right, right. how to it do an award season? Uh, it wasn't exactly an award movie, not something that you would say uh, was really something that's going to get stuff. It had one win, uh, which really doesn't count. It was like a win for you know, the DVD collection when it, when it was the big box set that came out. So that doesn't really count. Seven other nominations, six of which were the Saturn Awards, the Academy of Sci-Fi Fantasy and Horror Film nominations. Um, it was nominated, it didn't win anything, uh, but it was nominated there for best science fiction film, lost to the Terminator, best actor, William Shatner, uh, lost to Jeff Bridges for Starman. This was kind of a weird one, best supporting actress, Dame Judith Anderson, who comes in at the end as the, as the uh, Vulcan who is kind of performing this ritual to get uh, Spock's uh, katra back. Um, I didn't think that, I, I understand that Dame Judith Anderson was like this uh, famous actress and um, had retired for 14 years and came back um, to do this little part. But I was like, really, best supporting actress? I mean, they, maybe they're just really thin that year. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but Polly Holiday from Gremlins won that. Um, Leonard Nimoy was nominated for best director. Joe Dante from Gremlins won. Uh, Robert Fletcher uh, was nominated for his costumes, but Bob, Bob Ringwood won for Dune, rightfully so. And uh, and Ralph Winter was nominated for special effects, but uh, Chris Wallace uh, won for Gremlins. So. Didn't really win much. Um, But again, it wasn't the sort of thing that was going to win much.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, Coming off of the success of Star Trek II, I would imagine that there would be some budgetary excitement, some box office excitement.
0: Certainly, as, as you mentioned, I mean, Star Trek II was quite the success. So uh, Harvey and co. were given uh, $18 million to get the sequel going, which is uh, $41.7 in today's dollars. It was more than Wrath of Khan, but still nowhere near the ginormous budget that they had given to uh, the first movie. The movie opened wide June 1st, 1984, the same weekend its predecessor opened just two years earlier. It opened the same weekend as Sergio Leone's vastly truncated version of Once Upon a Time in America, along with Streets of Fire with Willem Dafoe and Diane Lane. It opened at number one that weekend, pushing uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune. Uh, Temple of Dune. <laughs> Temple of, I'm mixing up all my movies. <laughs> Temple. That's a, that's a very interesting one. I want to see Indiana oh Jones God. on Arrakis. <laughs> okay <laughs> pushed that one down to number two, uh, but then it was itself pushed down to number four in its second week when uh, Ghostbusters and Gremlins both opened up. It never, uh, it never was able to get back up to the number one spot, but it did go on to make seventy six point five million domestically and ten point five million internationally, making a total gross in today's dollars of two hundred one point eight million. Still wasn't as profitable as either of its predecessors, but it did make an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.5 million. So there you go. Pretty, uh, pretty successful still. We named the worms Indiana. <laughs> In the <laughs> Temple of Doom. <Dune. laughs> I just love that. I just yeah. love that. Oh, and I, you know I think Frank Welker, we were talking about him on our Hayao Mizuki. Was he doing some of our English versions? That's right. That must have been it. Yep, I'm sticking to it.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh closing thoughts, Andy. I this one's we we don't have the same sort of exuberance here
0: that we did last week, but did we did you learn anything? Well, it's you know, I I learned that I don't hate watching this movie, but it is a frustrating watch because there are a lot of element, elements within it that just kind of uh just irritate me. So, it's one of those where you know, I mean, I can look at it. I can I can see what they're doing with it. There are a lot of things I like. I just, I don't know, I just get frustrated watching it. And um, I know there are elements that are going to frustrate me with number four. But at least there's so much more to love in that film. So it's funny because this one, I think, um, I don't know when people started saying, oh, the odd-numbered Star Trek movies are the the kind of the boring ones or the less... I think that was number 1, Andy, right out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> and the even ones are the are the ones to watch. And uh it certainly seems to be going that way at this point. Um but I, then again, I really enjoyed the first one. Um so I don't know. This one is just a, it's a frustrating watch. Um I do feel now um having <laughs> having finally seen it, I feel like it's an important element to kind of uh, watch in, uh, in the in the continuity of everything, but it's not one that um i don't know i it's just a frustrating one
1: this is one of those movies that i have trouble with because i when i look at it logically i i really have trouble with it but it's also a star trek movie and so i i again i'm i uh, I give it a pass because I enjoy watching the universe unfold. And even though I sometimes don't like what's going on on screen, I like where they are. I like how they do it. So I give this one, an, uh, you know, a, a bit of a pass when it comes to, um, you, you know, certain um Certain pieces of it, I have trouble with the mysticism of it. I have trouble with the, um, uh, you know, with the logic of the Genesis Planet. It's really ridiculous. But pretty much any time you're going to float the Enterprise through space, and and that crushing blow of watching it, you know, burn up is it, it's a high point. And I I enjoy the caper part of it. And um and and so I'm, I you know it's it's not my least favorite Star Trek film. Right. I I said this was inconsequential and I I kind of feel like that's a good way to put it. For for me, it's a meh. It's a meh film. If I gave it's it's a Casablanca film. You know, you you despise me, don't you? Well, if I gave you any thought, I probably would.
0: It's yeah, I I, I feel like I'm kind of kind of in your camp. It's there's something about it being in the Star Trek franchise that makes me still enjoy it. Um it doesn't make me still enjoy it. I just I enjoy that Star Trek element of it. I enjoy those those high points, like you were saying. Um, yeah, it can. It's just there's a lot that still frustrates me, and it's it mostly focuses around uh, kind of Genesis and yeah stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I think we should probably rank it.
0: Let's do it.
1: Head over to flickchart.com/slash/the-next-reel, and you'll see our stack rankings of all of the films we've talked about on this very show and uh, uh then you can rank it yourself if you swipe over in your show notes you'll see a link to uh, star trek on flick Chart, and it'll take you right to the film where you can add it to your list andy where do we start
0: all right first up we have star trek 3 the search for spock or the road warrior the road warrior definitely the road warrior uh star trek 3 or the adventures of baron munchausen both very problematic films
1: yes they are uh, i'd probably go star trek 3 because of the star Trek factor
0: i'm gonna go baron munchausen all right so <laughs> it's, it's a wimpy baron munchausen but i'm still gonna go with it
1: hey, you know all right let's entertain one another andy <laughs> <laughs> Let's. One, one two, two three, three. scissors
0: oh mm-hmm. broke my scissors mm-hmm. star trek three or the deer hunter i'm definitely the deer, the deer hunter. hunter yeah star trek three or the thin man i'm probably the thin man thin man for me Star Trek 3 or The Illusionist. The Illusionist. Honestly, I would go with Star Trek 3. Okay, you can have it. Okay. Star Trek 3 or Village of the Damned. Star Trek 3. I'm going to say Village of the Damned. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Here we go.
1: All right. One, one two, two, three. three. Scissors, scissors. Paper. paper scissors. Rock.
0: Oh. Again, you are crushed. Again. The uh, star trek 3 or gallipoli i would i
1: would put on star trek 3 first
0: i would put star trek 3 on first but i think gallipoli is the better film so i'm gonna say gallipoli this is one of those weird flick chart times where i like i'm, I'm picking the one that's a better film because it's you know it's not high up enough for me to pick I'm, based on my i'm, I'm gonna stick preference. with my pick here we go all right one, one two, two three, three. paper Rock i'm feeling good i'm failing today star trek 3 or lupin the third the castle of cagliostro i'm gonna say lupin the third really no i'm gonna say star trek yeah yeah you are yeah that
1: was gonna gonna i think
0: lupin's the better film but (laughs) but you got the death of the enterprise so yeah all right well that puts star trek 3 the search for spock at number 215 out of 312 on our chart Wow. There you go. Wow. Yeah. Uh,
1: so what does that do for your, I uh, see, I personally, I ranked it, I think, much higher, I it, and I just re-ranked it today, and it ended up at uh, 280 on my flick chart out of 996 or something. So that's a 72 uh, for me. What? Where did you go?
0: Mine is uh, ranked at 950. I did not re-rank it. Um, it's at 957 out of 3809. Um, and that's, uh, it's about a 75% yeah. on my chart. So it's higher than yours, but I think, I don't know. I'd have to see what what is around it, but I feel like it's probably dropped a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, what What's this for your, How's uh, this shoot for you for Letterboxd? Letterboxd.com slash the next reel.
0: I'm. I think I'm a three star. It's. It's. There's problems with it, um, but there were things that I did like, and there were powerful moments. So I'm. I'm going to give it three. I.
1: I am going to give it a three too, and that. That feels about right. Uh, in fact, that's letter. If I go by what Flickchart says, I should rank it on Letterbox. Then it should be a three point five. But I'm. I'm going to stick with a three. That. That feels good, and it's the. You know, probably a little bit of New Savick, a lot of Genesis, and um, Christopher Lloyd's dental work. That's what's going to that's going <laughs> to contribute to dropping it a half star. But I liked it, so I'd still give it. the You're going to give it the heart. I'm going to give it the heart because
0: it's Star Trek. Yeah,
1: yeah. There you go. What's next?
0: We're going to end uh, this little mini trilogy that ended up in the Star Trek universe. We're going to be going back in time to uh, save some whales with Star Trek 4 The Voyage Home. That's uh, your favorite one. It it is my favorite one, Andy. <laughs>
1: okay. I think we <laughs> established that. Uh, okay. Uh, All right. All right. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be good. I'm gonna keep my keep my mood
0: high. I, I'm excited for this one because this is one that I grew up with. And if there is ever
1: evidence that we were born at the wrong time, this might be it. Then. <laughs>
0: Maybe. I guess we'll find out next week. <laughs>
1: can't wait to do that Andy you know when movie ends our conversation begins Amazon giveth, Andy,
0: as Amazon always doeth.
1: Uh, I I had a hard time with the one stars. They weren't good. People were not really delivering their best efforts in the one stars this week.
0: That is correct. No, uh, you you went high. I went high. I went for a five star. All right. Rex Gillum has a a wonderful little review. Uh, five stars. I bought this for a gift for a sick friend. He loves it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's kind like of UX. a proxy review. <laughs>
0: yes. That's
1: another use of Amazon. I love it. I love it. Officer thinking.
0: <laughs> I, I'm going to start doing that. Roger Ebert gave <laughs> this five stars.
1: <laughs> My friend Andy gave this a rock in rock paper scissors. <laughs> uh, mine is a you know I went right down the middle just as I did myself. It's a three star. Uh, old Williams says good movie but lacking in storyline. <laughs> I just. overall good film didn't enjoy it as much as the voyage home or the undiscovered country in this installment spock is back from the dead seems he was catapulted to the genesis planet where he is starting over from a kid kind of crackers (laughs) 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 Uh, and from now on andy uh, i'll be using
0: crackers Vulcan crackers. As a
1: thing, as a thing that I say, that'll be my thing. So thank you, William. (laughs) just crackers. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon.
0: Audible.
1: Okay, we're gonna play a little game. I'm gonna name a series from Season 7, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations.
0: (laughs) Nice. I own this game. We shall see. Here we
1: go, starting with an easy one. The Millennium Trilogy.
0: (laughs) Seriously? The girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who played with fire, the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2.
1: Except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible. What? Crime of the Century! Okay, 1968
0: musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice! We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time.